and welcome to The Bunkers Start Your Week. I'm Ros Taylor. Joining me to talk about this week's news is Yasmin Sirhan of The Atlantic. Hello, Yasmin. Good weekend. Uh, yeah, very good. I um, watched Eurovision for the first time ever, so pretty exciting stuff on my end. <laughs> well, I am yours? about to ask you about that, because for once, the news out of Ukraine is not too awful, and not just winning Eurovision on Saturday, which, let's face it, they were always going to do. What did you think of the song? I'm going to be honest with everyone. Because this was my first time watching Eurovision, I, I unfortunately like started watching halfway through, so I didn't get to see the Ukrainian one, which or the Ukrainian performance, I should say, which I do need to go back and watch. I saw like sort of the snippet. I mean, I was just cheered to see Ukraine win generally. I think everyone was, um, including here in the UK. I think they got the most votes in terms of the, the population, um, unfortunately, if not the jury. But um, yeah, I was really happy to see. It. I mean, I, I must say, I, I, I don't know. It just maybe because I didn't really know what Eurovision was, and I think in my head I was thinking like American Idol. I was just really <laughs> blown away by how weird it is. Oh yeah. I, I hope people will forgive me for saying that. It was just so crazy. I love Moldova, though. I thought they were just hilarious. Moldova was great. I would describe the Ukraine song as folk rap, but it somehow seemed to work. And Norway was very good as well. Something about a wolf not eating your grandma. or It was, it was extraordinary anyway. But I was not very impressed <laughs> by the UK song. I thought that was very, very underwhelming, despite the fact it came second. Despite having never watched Eurovision before, I was primed for the UK to not win any points because that's what I was told happens every year. So I was really, yeah, surpri pleasantly surprised to see them perform so well. The news from Ukraine is not as bad, perhaps, as it could have been. The MOD estimates a third of Russian troops sent into Ukraine have been killed and that Russia is unlikely to make any major advances in the next month. NATO even says Ukraine could win this war. Should we be optimistic? Um, I, I think there's certainly room for some cautious optimism. I mean, even I know US officials were briefing to reporters on say either late last week or over the weekend that Ukraine is also appears to be winning the battle for Kharkiv. Um, they've pushed Russian troops north towards the border and they're even reclaiming some towns and villages in the region. So yeah, I think U Ukraine is up until this point has exceeded people's wildest expectations. So that has been, um, yeah, been very positive and, and they're buttressed, of course, by their Eurovision victory. So I, I think, you know, yeah, I think cautiously optimistic, obviously, I feel like it, it, this war has obviously been droning on for, for quite a bit now. And, and I think people's in terms of their kind of general attention span kind of kind of goes back and forth a little bit. But yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing some positive signs. There's even a suggestion that it might be more advantageous for countries like France for Ukraine to do a bit of a deal where it gives some territory to Russia in order for Russia to feel less humiliated. Of course, Zelensky is adamantly opposed to that. Is that really where we're at at the moment? Do you, do you think there's a chance that there could be, if you like, a peace deal of that kind where small amounts of Ukrainian territory could, could become Russian? Potentially. I mean, obviously, I think there's going to be a big reluctance on the part of Ukraine to give Russia the sense that doing what it's done could end up with anything resembling a victory, as it were, or, or you know, having won something. But that said, I think the fact that Western leaders are even like thinking about, you know, how do we make this so it's not too humiliating for Russia is indicative of just how well Ukraine is doing, the fact that they're almost trying to damage control. And I think that also does show sort of how 
maybe unpredictable Russia is, the fact that, you know, we don't really know how Vladimir Putin is going to react. And, you know, if if Russia is seen to have a pretty big defeat, what does that make him do? Um, I think that's a big question. And yeah, we're, that's obviously a concern that people are thinking about right now. Meanwhile, NATO has said that Finland can join and Sweden says it wants to join NATO as well. How much of a break is this for them? This is a a huge break. And, you know, I wrote, I think I wrote about this back in March about how, you know, obviously when Putin started this war, part of his reasons for doing so was to effectively um, stop NATO expansion. And what he has done in his invasion of Ukraine is pretty much the exact opposite. Um, I think win or lose, this is going to be one of the war's biggest legacies. Uh, the fact that Putin has effectively created um, a more attractive and now larger NATO. Uh, But in terms of how big of a shift this is, I mean, you only really have to look at the polling numbers. In Finland in January, only 30% of Finns supported joining the military alliance. By March, that number surged to 53%, and now it's a whopping 76. Um, And in Sweden, um, which like Finland has historically seen itself as sort of a neutral buffer between Russia and the West, um, that change has also been pretty pronounced. But, you know, it's worth noting uh, that, you know, this wouldn't have happened if not for the invasion of Ukraine. You know, at the end of the day, we owe it to Putin that NATO has expanded. um, And in doing so, it doubled Russia's land border with NATO. Um, You know, we we should all remember that Finland has a a pretty sizable, I think, 800 plus mile border with, with Russia. It looks like, apart from, there there were some murmurs from Turkish President Erdogan that that he wouldn't support um, Finland and Sweden's joining the the alliance. And this is a decision that requires unanimity over their alleged harboring of Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK group. But it it sounds like from senior NATO figures that Turkey won't block the bid. So it is very much looking um, like both those countries will be joining the alliance sometime soon. Elsewhere, you've been following the killing of an Al Jazeera reporter in the West Bank, haven't you? Yes. Uh, yeah, that unfortunately, I think, hit a lot of colleagues, uh, especially fellow Palestinian colleagues, really, really hard last week, the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla, as you mentioned, yeah, veteran reporter for Al Jazeera and a pretty big journalistic icon in, in Palestine and across the Arab world. And what ramifications has it had? Well, obviously, the, the killing of a journalist itself, although this unfortunately isn't uncommon in the region, I think, according to, to one um, organization, I think as many as 46 journalists have been killed in Israel-Palestine since 2000. So unfortunately, that's that's quite a big number, more than, bigger than, of course, we, we'd ever want to see. Um, it's been, yeah, it's, it's been pretty, I mean, the, this story has, it, it hasn't really died down at all. Um, Shireen was unfortunately killed on Wednesday while covering an Israeli military raid of Jenin, which is a city in in the Palestinian-occupied territories in the West Bank. According to her network, Al Jazeera, but also eyewitnesses, um, that shot came from an Israeli sniper. Obviously, the Israeli um, authorities did, this is just by, by, by way of a recap, the Israeli authorities did at first try to insinuate that perhaps it could have come from Palestinian gunfire, though video evidence seems to have con- contradicted that and they appear to have walked that line back very quickly. So that in terms of you know who killed her, that that is still technically speaking open to a, an investigation. 
as for who conducts that investigation, how that's going to go about, I, I think that still remains to be seen. But if Shireen's death weren't tragic enough, on Friday, the world watched as one of the largest and certainly the longest funeral procession in Palestinian history took place. Um, and it was unfortunately attacked by Israeli police. There are videos all over my Twitter feed, at least, of Jerusalem police physically beating Shireen's mourners and her pallbearers with batons, causing them to very nearly drop her casket. Um, so what is new is that Jerusalem police have said that they're going to open an investigation into their handling of her funeral. But yeah, I mean, in terms of me and how I'm thinking of this story, you know, I had dinner with a, a Palestinian colleague from Hebron um, just over the weekend. And, you know, she was telling me how Shireen was an inspiration for her to become a journalist. I spoke to my mom about how she, you know, she kind of grew up watching Shireen as well. And I think the fact that so many uh, Palestinian journalists, particularly female Palestinian journalists, cite Shireen as the reason that they've gotten into the profession is is just such an incredible legacy. So I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about that um, yeah, in the days and weeks to come. Back in the UK, there were strong hints last week that the UK would tear up parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol and trigger potentially a trade war with the EU. Boris Johnson seems to have rode back a bit on that over the weekend, but he has written a piece, and apparently he's actually written himself, according to rumours, for the Belfast Telegraph, basically setting out his claim that the Northern Ireland Protocol is not fit for purpose in the post-COVID era. What's your take on, on all this? Gosh, I mean, <laughs> as someone who followed Brexit and, and everything pretty closely, like 2017 to 2019, and then sort of switched over to other things, I kind of feel like, oh, gosh, we're back at this again, um, is kind of my immediate um, take. I mean, it, it is it does seem like a bit of a rowback. Um, I, I was reading his Telegraph piece this morning, and, and he did say those who want to scrap the protocol rather than seeking changes are focusing on the wrong things. So that seems to be a, a pretty clear pushback against the notion that they just want to get rid of it. Um, but in terms of sort of how how the rest of us are supposed to read into this, I mean, I'm mostly looking forward to seeing what Liz Truss announces in terms of the, the I guess, the, the domestic law that they're going to put forward that would introduce some of the changes that we're going to see to the protocol. So um, it, it'll be helpful to kind of, I think, see the detail there. But apart from that, it, it just feels like we're back in, I don't even know what year it was now where we were discussing all of this, 2018, 2019. It feels like we just, it's a blast from the past. We're like, oh, here we go again, sort of thing. The new inflation figure is out on Wednesday, which is not likely to be pretty. Do you think he's worried about the impact a trade war would have on inflation? Oh, 100%. I mean, it already feels like so. I mean, the, the only sort of big announcement I saw from the government in terms of helping people with the cost of living crisis has been that NHS prescription charges are going to be frozen. But that feels like, you know, that's good, but that feels like such a small thing. So yeah, to, to add on top of that trade wars and potential costs that comes from that, it feels like consumers are already really struggling right now. Um, so I'm sure there there will be a lot of I should hope at least a, a desire to to make sure that those costs aren't rising even further. Yeah, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, said he was ready to help over the weekend, but it was not at all clear how or when there might be an emergency budget. And there are continued rumblings about Keir Starmer's leadership. I was very struck over the weekend, I was reading the New Statesman about their pretty harsh criticism of him and his, not just his leadership, but his personality and fitness to be Prime Minister. Do you think his position is in danger beyond the problem over 
Partygate and Beergate and whether the Durham police decide to issue him with a fixed penalty notice, in which case he said he will resign. Is he in trouble beyond that? Well, I think, you know, if we just think back to everything that's kind of happened over the course of the pandemic to Partygate and kind of all the other crises that would happen, one would think that the Tories have kind of delivered the opposition a pretty kind of great moment to position themselves as as an alternative you know, one one would think that it would be very easy to land a lot of shots against this government. And and in many ways, I think Keir Starmer has, but the very fact that his leadership seems to be in doubt, of course, the fact that hanging over him is this possibility that he could in fact resign, I think obviously isn't a strong image. Yeah, I think just even just based on that, that the, you, one would think at this moment that Labour would be able to seize on the government's handling of the pandemic, it's partying during the pandemic, the cost of living crisis and what the government is going to do about it. The fact that the party is embroiled in a, a scandal of its own and that, you know, even its leadership is kind of called into question isn't the best position to be in, of course. We're also back to working from home, an ongoing issue in Britain, it seems, with Boris Johnson saying at the weekend that he gets distracted when he works from home. He starts making coffee and cutting off hunks of cheese to eat. And indeed, the FT says today that Britons are more likely to be working from home than other Europeans because we have more jobs that can be done there. We have less manufacturing, more services. And there seems to be a trend now where commuting is levelling out at 22% below pre-COVID levels, whereas in other European countries, that's not the case. It's only about 7 8% below. It's a difficult one, this, isn't it? Because I could see the advantages to working from an office, but at the same time, you save so much money when you don't commute. And I don't think the government is quite grasping that during a cost of living crisis, people might want to save money by not commuting. Are you, uh, are you, yeah. Have you been working from home? I am speaking to you from my dining room table, which is where I've been for the last two plus years. Um, <laughs> um, and and don't get me wrong, I am very keen to shake up my you know to that that the prospects of going into an office one to two to even three days a week excites me. Someone who lives in a one bedroom flat, you know, who who shares a living room with with my partner, who who fortunately uh, for him at least does get to go into an office one to do one to two days a week. And that really works well for him by the looks of it. Um, it just kind of shakes up your routine. But to your point, and I think to to the prime minister's point, I mean, as for the distractions with coffee and cheese, I mean, I think he should probably speak for himself. I'm not sure what the working is like in, in Downing Street. But I, I think what we've seen throughout this crisis is that actually people can be just as, if not more productive, working from home. And, and to the point that you made, it you, does save money. I mean, the fact of the matter is when you're going into an office, you're invariably going to, you know, maybe go to prep, maybe grab some lunch, grab a coffee. And and if, you know, costs weren't rising enough, if, if you can save a couple of quid staying home and working from home as you have done for the last couple of years, you're probably going to select that, especially if money's tight. But, you know, I, I think the notion that people are less productive, I don't necessarily think after two years that that's a convincing argument. I think you can make other arguments for for why people could go into the office. And, and I think for some people, per, perhaps like me, there, there is a desire to to go in at least a couple of days a week to, you know, see your colleagues, to to kind of have all the benefits of, of working together in person. But I, I think the notion that remote work or, or even flexible work should just go out the door completely is is just 
completely unrealistic. I think everyone I've spoken to, at least anecdotally, talking to friends in, in numerous industries, even those who you know had to go into the office during the pandemic, because say they're vets or doctors or whatever, I don't think you know even their schedules have changed, and I, I they don't see them going back permanently to the way they were pre-COVID either. There's also an argument that it helps leveling up because people can move further away from London especially, and mm -hmm. live in smaller places that might need an economic boost. In fact, Michael Gove has been suggesting just that this weekend because he was making a big point out of the fact that Lords should not decant itself, as I think the, the phrase is, to the Queen Elizabeth II Centre in Westminster, but it should go to somewhere like Stoke instead, which would certainly be a shock, I think, for a lot of the peers. Do you find that prospect attractive, maybe moving out of London completely and being somewhere Totally <laughs> I mean, I, I think as a concept, this especially as it as it relates to leveling up, I think giving people the option, particularly with London rates being what they are, rent rates, I should say, the, the option to live elsewhere, potentially live in the country with a bit more space. I think that is great. I think as an American, though, having moved to London for London, I feel very tied to the city and I do love it quite a lot. But I do see the appeal. I mean, maybe maybe one day, but I, I think giving people the option, even just to have that option alone, I think is is great. And yeah, so I, I think that that can only be a positive thing. And, and one would think or hope that maybe the government would say, actually, <laughs> this is a great way to sort of maybe spread that wealth a little bit. Just stay off the cheese. And that's it for Bunker Start Your Week. Thanks, Yasmin. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily is presented by Ross Taylor with Yasmin Sirhan The producers were Jacob Archbold Yelena Sofonievich and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>